the Mint's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. My name is Steve Osborne. I'm a private company lawyer and a partner in our Silicon Valley office. And I'm here with two of our top corporate governance partners, Melanie Levy, who is a capital markets lawyer in San Diego, and Tom Burton, who is the chair of our clean energy and sustainability practice and is located in Boston. Welcome, Tom and Melanie. Hi, Steve. Thank you very much. Hi, Steve. Great to see you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Melanie. Today is session three of our In the Boardroom podcast series, and today's topic is on board committees, where we're going to cover what committees typically exist, when to form them, and who serves on them. We'll look at both private and public companies, and this podcast should be particularly helpful for our growth stage companies and IPO-ready companies. So let's kick it off. What are the kinds of committees that boards would form? Melanie? The three most typical committees that you'll see, and this is largely driven by exchange requirements, so New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ Exchange. So even for companies who aren't public, traditionally, they're going to form these three committees or a subset of one of these three committees. The number one is the audit committee which oversees the preparation of financial statements, the hiring of a company's auditor, and is typically chaired by someone who has expertise in reading financial statements and preparing them. Two is the compensation committee, which is kind of like it sounds. Its role is to either implement itself or to recommend to the board the implementation of a compensation plan and to approve compensation matters for executive officers of a company, or sometimes they will even opine and provide recommendations regarding rank and file employees as well. The role of the compensation committee typically is to administer the equity incentive plan. So option awards, RSUs, a compensation committee would typically oversee all of that activity. And the final committee, which sometimes companies don't have until they're public because by its nature, the Nominating and Corporate Governance Committee will oversee the nomination um, or recommendation of nomination for candidates to the board, and then will generally oversee the company's policies and the board's activities related to, more broadly, corporate governance matters, which could include an insider trading policy, could include a code of conduct, could include code of ethics, could include other policies that they may oversee, including what's become very popular or very, I would say, in for the most recent years, um, what we call ESG. And a nominee and governance committee will also often oversee a company's ESG efforts. Tell me more about what, what ESG means, Tom. Yeah, I'll, let me first, uh, I'll definitely go into that in a second, but I want to actually take us back a moment and ask the core question, which is sort of why form committees in the first place, right? And I think, you know, before we've got obviously these requirements under this exchanges for public companies, but why might private companies do that? For those of us who are loyal listeners, uh, you may remember uh, from a prior podcast that we discussed fiduciary duties of boards, uh, that board members have a duty of care. Uh, and diligence to oversee the strategy of the business. And uh, sometimes the work of the board uh, needs to be done outside of the meetings uh, in terms of the volume of work. And sometimes the work of the board uh, sometimes requires, uh, you know, additional lifting and time that you know, may not be able to be done you know, during meetings. And so the Delaware Code allows for boards to charge subsets of the board, which is what the committee is, a subset of the board, 
with the duty to uh, discharge you know, those activities. And the board can delegate that authority to the committee to take those actions. So, for example, when it comes to compensation, like CEO compensation, you know, uh, hiring compensation consultants, working with them to set a, uh, a structure for compensation, often that uh, is a lot of work that needs to be done outside of a typical board meeting. And so a committee can perform that work and the board can delegate the committee to do that. Uh, and that helps the board overall meet its fiduciary duties. Uh, same thing with audit, for example, reviewing the company's audited financials, ensuring that you know controls and measures are in place that allow for those audited financials to to be prepared consistent with the with the ultimately the the duties that the board requires uh, and uh, ultimate disclosure requirements as public companies. So, so those are important factors, and, and there are many other types of committees in the three that uh, were mentioned by Melanie as well. It's uh, not unusual when we see conflicts of interest arise for new committees to be formed to address uh, those conflicts where conflicted board members are not involved in the decision-making process, but rather the committee, which is the board members uh, without the conflicted member, you know, will, will take those actions. It's common in the M&A context for sure. In recent years, um, we have seen a lot of attention come to the fore around you know environmental and social governance uh, matters, companies that are seeking to take their business in a direction uh, to reduce their carbon emissions, for example, and also to address social issues you know, that will ultimately inure to the benefit of the shareholders of the corporation. And there's been a lot of debate as to how duties relative to ESG might ultimately be discharged. And so companies in some cases are forming ESG committees uh, to oversee uh, you know, environmental compliance or DEI matters. They are also uh, taking existing committees and often using those existing committees to be able to measure, monitor, and verify the environmental actions of the business or its goals around measures like DEI. Uh, we've seen that in the audit committee, but more, more often than not, the nomination and governance committee, uh, largely because the G is governance and best practice and understanding how to measure and mitigate risk. And uh, that committee has most likely been the place to house the ESG activity uh, that boards need to be sure they're in compliance on. We've talked before about the fiduciary duties that are owed by board members to the company. And I'm wondering if there's a difference in those fiduciary duties when it comes to service on a committee. And maybe a little bit about what you hit on, Tom, which was how much time is required or what is required of somebody who is sitting on a committee. Melanie, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think directors always have the duty of care and the duty of loyalty, whether you're on a committee or not. You always have that. It just from my perspective, one thing that's a little bit different about being on a committee and just kind of looking at it through a public company lens is the committee, there is more expected of the committee chairs with respect to how the company conducts itself. So let me just give like an example. An example would be, let's say the audit committee is, for whatever reason, in charge of overseeing a company's insider trading policy. And let's say that the company has done things with respect to that insider trading policy or has allowed trades that perhaps weren't in compliance or for whatever reason might have occurred. So in addition to that audit committee chair having the fiduciary duty to oversee that activity, what will often happen 
is when a company files its proxy statements or shareholders are given the shareholder advisory firms, including like ISS, are given the opportunity to evaluate that individual's performance. They will look at that individual's performance in connection with that particular policy, because that is something the chair of that committee is supposed to be overseeing. If a company were to have, you know, let's say they just didn't make the most basic ESG disclosures or even make any attempt at ESG disclosures, but they say publicly that the nominating and corporate governance committee is in charge of those things. Well, then really investors start to look at the chair and they'll start to ask questions and say, well, hey, you're the chair of this committee. You're supposed to be making sure that ESG happens. So we're going to maybe recommend that stockholders not vote for you next time or that they withhold your vote. So it's not so much in my mind that you have different duties. You certainly have the same duties, but you are responsible, particularly if you're the chair for the things that that committee is supposed to govern. And stockholders, at least with their votes, can hold you accountable to that. And to a certain extent, to the I guess to the extent there was a breach of those duties, you might have litigation or you might have liability that said you really didn't exercise supervision over your inciting trading policy. You really didn't do the things that we expected you to do. Um, and you might see your name appear if, you know, God forbid, there were a claim against the company um, by a shareholder. I think that's really helpful. And, and I guess in many ways, when my venture-backed uh, startup CEOs ask me, why do we need this DNO insurance? Maybe that's, a, maybe that's one of the great answers right there. I, I really liked it, Melanie, when you started, you, you, you know, and, and we were talking about why you would form a committee and, and what these committees are. You mentioned that a lot of, for a public company, a lot of the rules are, are proposed by the exchanges themselves. And, and then and we thought about, you know, the private companies. We talked about how private companies are preparing to go public. They also form these committees. Tom, what trends are you seeing for venture-backed companies that are sort of in that Series A and Series E phase? Great question, Steve. You know, we've seen in recent years, uh, I'd say, a pretty healthy uptick in the use of committees. And certainly, uh, we're finding that venture capital-backed businesses um, are seeking to engage in best practices in governance uh, and in risk management. And they are taking a page out of the public company books. So they're looking at what, you know, their successful businesses and their portfolios have done, you know, what the rules require for uh, optimal governance. And, and they're actually implementing those uh, same structures at the private company level. So primarily what we're seeing is uh, the formation regularly of compensation and audit committees. And those committees, uh, you know, typically will be formed when you get to a, a size of board of around five, you know, five member boards, then begin to, you know, peel those off. You know, an A round with a three member board isn't likely to have uh, committees. The board is small enough that it, in effect, there's really, there's really no delegation <laughs> needing to be done at that, at that level. But at the, uh, you know, that B round, when you get to five, or if you have five at the A round, we do see that happen. So, um, so we're borrowing from the best practices in the charters, you know, the, the public company charters for committees, and we're using those as the mandates for these uh, these companies. Now, interestingly, we do not see a full delegation of authority. We often will see at the private company level that the committees are charged with the work required, so the work of analyzing the comp data around the CEO, for example. 
uh, but not the authority to actually set the compensation for that that person. Typically, it's to only recommend to the full board the compensation in the case of the CEO or or with respect to the audit. You know the work required to confirm, you know, to hire the auditors and confirm, you know, uh, the appropriate steps have been taken to complete the audit, but the ultimate approval of the audit, audited financials occurring at the board level itself. So those are, I'd say, one key distinction. We we should probably just touch on now that you know um, there's some new Delaware law in place, which um, you know I think is uh, is going to be important coming up. Traditionally, when it comes to the issuance of stock options to employees, the private company level boards would almost invariably always approve those option grants, approve both fair market value of the company's common stock prior to any grant and then the grant itself. That that authority to issue options, I believe, is now able to be potentially provided and and delegated to not only committees, but even the executives, the CEO um, in particular. So, so that's a dramatic and uh, new development in uh, Delaware corporate law that will be uh, addressed in in many boardrooms across the country in the in the very short term. I'm sure. Yeah, we may want to circle back on some of those things. Uh, Melanie, did you have something you wanted to add there? Yeah, I did want to say it's interesting, Tom, because public companies compensation committees had actually been delegating to individuals the ability to grant options to the rank and file employees as long as it was never an executive officer. So, but the comp committee would have to have a bucket and it would say you can grant, you know, up to a million, no share can exceed, you know, 50,000 shares. And then the vesting has to be this and you can never grant it to an executive officer. So it's interesting because for public companies, many of them had delegated to an individual or the comp committee had already delegated to an individual in any case, just to provide flexibility. But I think what the Delaware law does too, at least if you're a public company, is it kind of just supports. And probably if you've been doing resolutions for your comp committee to do that delegation, it now makes sense to reference that law because it supports what you're doing versus just leaving that out. But that's probably a note yeah. for, lawyer, for like lawyers drafting minutes. Great, great point. Yeah, great point. And, and certainly I, I would say that I'm not aware of many venture capitalists who would give their CEOs full authority to grant all stock options uh, to whomever they, they desire. <laughs> so, yeah. it's, a, it's a public company creature, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> they, they would never give up that much uh, control, probably. <laughs> I certainly have a lot of CEOs in venture-backed companies who have asked me, how, how, you know, can, I, can I get authority to do the options without board oversight? Uh, and, and you're right, Tom, I, I think the boards aren't super... Uh, interested in delegating that full authority to, to CEOs and venture-backed companies. But staying on that venture-backed company, so, you know, the the compensation for a venture-backed company, often it's the recommendation of that compensation is coming from the CEO. And what I think I'm hearing you saying is that more often in earlier stage companies, even Series A, Series B, where we have five-person boards, the board is taking that recommendation and picking a few members of the board to really dig into the details with the CEO and the exec team about how they develop those numbers and those kinds of things. Maybe another uh, place where a venture-backed company needs to be thinking about boards is the audit. Obviously, if you don't have audited financials, you don't have an audit committee on your board. But as you're getting that first audit done, what are the best practices that come with forming an audit committee to address that sort of first audit? 
So there, that's a that's actually a great question, and you know, in some ways, I feel like it's the work that can be done fully at the board. Often, what I do tend to find is that you know, a small committee is formed to really to vet the choice of auditor. Uh, the challenge for emerging companies that are venture backed is that they may not need the quality of a big four firm, but the investment funds that have invested in them. Um, have limited partners who are some of the you know largest, often have some of the some of the largest pension funds and endowments in the country, and so they demand a level of excellence that is often only afforded by national firms. And so, the committee can uh, really serve the purpose of vetting uh, the right firm for the company at its stage, you know, in order to ensure that not only will the company's board meet its fiduciary duties to its shareholders, but that its shareholders can feel confident that their limited partners uh, will be satisfied, you know, with, with that work. And then, you know, the, the granular detail is, is not something that we lawyers get too uh, into, but we certainly do see that these committees will meet on a regular basis, will review the financials, um, you know, poke at the controls and procedures undertaken through the audit and ensure that it was done on an independent basis. So just to be clear, you're not required to form an audit committee to no. vet an auditor or look at the controls. Uh, Correct. This, yep. this is, this is a choice that boards make. Okay. Just to make, so our audience, audience is clear that this is becoming more common and maybe is considered best practice as you're on the road to IPO. Melanie, you, you have something to add on this point? Yeah, I just want to make very clear that once, however, you are a publicly traded company, and that means, you know, particularly if you're traded on an exchange, the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, you must have an audit committee. It is required. And that audit committee has to be chaired by somebody who is considered a financial expert, meaning they have had experience reviewing or preparing financial statements. And every member of that audit committee, and really your compensation committee and nominating and governance committee as well, must also be independent. So they can't be employees of the company. They can't have had you know more than typically $120,000 in compensation from the company. And there's various tests that the board will look at every year to make sure that they're independent. And the one thing I would say about audit committees, the whole board will always approve the audited financials for the 10K because the whole board will sign a company's annual report 10K. The audit committee of a public company will meet always at least quarterly because they have to approve the audited financial state or the unaudited financial statements to go into the quarterly reports. And the things that you'll hear in an audit committee for a public company, it's actually really very interesting because what that audit committee is doing is trying to make sure that that public company is presenting publicly accurate financial information and that there's not anything wrong with the accounting systems of the company that I guess that created that financial information. So the audit committee will always have a presentation from the auditors. Then they have these quote-unquote required communications where the audit committee and the auditors have to confirm they're not aware of any instances of fraud or material weaknesses, internal controls. And then this is very important. The management members, there must always be an executive session 
should, well, should always be an executive session for the audit committee where management leaves and the audit committee has a candid conversation with the auditor about how did the preparation of the financial statements go? Were there issues? Is there feedback about management that should be communicated or addressed in connection with the preparation of those financial statements? Because those financial statements from a public company perspective are an incredibly important piece of information. And having something be wrong in those financial statements or have to be restated can be very disastrous for a company's share price or value. I think that's a really interesting point to make, especially for the business people who are listening to this podcast who expect that they can take their company public and to really understand the rigors with which you look at public company boards and public company committees. And I think it's interesting. So one of the distinctions that's coming out in this conversation that I think is really interesting to our audience, I hope, is that there's a lot of standards and a lot of rules when you're a public company. And it's less so when you're a private company. There's no hard and fast rule about when you form these committees. It's not like when you have a Series A, you now must form a committee. It's just the trends and, the, and, and what seems right to the company and to the board. And that the rules that govern a lot of these committees for the private companies mirror in many ways the public companies, but don't have to mirror those. So when it comes to forming these committees, what documentation needs to come together? How do you put together the rules, let's say, for these committees? Let's focus first on the private company side. Tom, do you have thoughts on how you would frame out the rules for your committees in a private company? Yeah, sure. So um, when a board ultimately determines it, it needs to delegate some of that work in order to meet its fiduciary duties to a comp or audit committee and, you know, in the most common sense. The board can then determine the members of the board that would serve on that committee and pass a resolution to do that, thus bringing it to life. And then we typically will recommend that the committee members work with uh, legal counsel to draft a charter. It's called a committee charter. And the committee charter will lay out the duties and responsibilities of that committee. And so, for example, one of the new developments with ESG matters is that in you know most nom and gov committee charters, you know, until you know recent years did not mention um, any of the elements around you know environmental compliance or or certain social issues that are important to companies to uh, succeed and, and to you know, maximize shareholder value. And so we've been building in provisions uh, and duties uh, for these committees relative to uh, those issues. And so charter work is always dynamic, depending on the moment you're in and time you're in. We work on those with those committee members, get them comfortable. They then will typically bring that charter to the board for the board to approve or recommend changes. And then um, upon adoption of that charter, you know, the committee is then able to discharge its duties. It will meet regularly, just like a board, and you know, we'll keep minutes of those meetings to prove ultimately that duties were satisfied. That's, I think, probably the, high, the highest level to sort of talk about how we think about process in that case. Oh, it's fantastic. That, that is exactly what I was asking. It was a great answer. And, you know, it's best practices to have the outside counsel probably sit in your board meeting and take minutes and, and be available to, to advise the board. Do, does the outside counsel sit in these committee meetings, too? It, it depends. You know, um, I, I think when you're dealing with routine matters, not uh, not as much needed. Uh, but I can tell you, for example, that, you know, we've had scenarios where, you know, uh, the audit committee was used to 
attend to and and deal with potential conflicts of interest uh, that had arisen between uh, executives and the company. And so, you know, we had to do some internal investigation, for example, and the audit committee often could be charged with the the need to do that. And in some of those situations, the committee wants to be sure that the attorney-client privilege would be uh, available to protect the committee in its uh, discussions uh, around uh, the potential issue. And in those cases, uh, we certainly recommend that you know outside counsel attend, keep minutes, and uh, work to help preserve the privilege, which can be very important in allowing boards to freely and fully deliberate and, and come to good answers uh, in, in important decisions that it needs to make. That's great. And, and Melanie, any, anything that Tom said that is sort of different as you're getting closer to becoming a public company or when you're a public company? Well, not not necessarily. Everything you have the same, again, it, it goes back to the NASDAQ requirements and you're, they're just suggesting good corporate governance practices. They are requirements that you you must you must generally have there are some exceptions to them where sometimes the exchanges give you a little bit of time to put some of it in place but for the most part the best practice is to have them in place and the only the only other thing i would say is it's very typical for the reporting lawyer to always sit in the board and committee meetings and some of this just depends if the if the in-house counsel of a company has expertise and knowledge in reporting. Sometimes the in-house counsel will cover it, but will excuse themselves from the executive session. And then it will just be board members. But oftentimes the reporting counsel for a publicly traded company will be in the meeting because it's very easy to make a decision in a boardroom that requires an AK or requires disclosure. And oftentimes it's very helpful you know, because sometimes minutes may not be done, you know, till multiple days after the board meeting to make sure that if the board is making a decision that requires disclosure, it's known at the time and that somebody tells the board, by the way, what you're doing is going to require an 8K. And that, that's true of the committees as well. And so if the committees are making a decision, it, it's important to tell that committee, by the way, this is how what you've decided will be disclosed or this and you will have to disclose it at X time. And just to make sure that they're all fully aware that they don't accidentally do something <laughs> that triggers a filing that they don't want. Sometimes there's ways to walk it back. Other times, not so much. That's, that's really great insight. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Well, we like to wrap up these sessions with a question from one of our clients. This comes from a client that is in the process of uh, selling the business. And the question is, we want to create a bonus plan to compensate our executives in connection with the sale of our business. How do we do that? And I think this question is, is reflective of the fact that probably in this transaction, the, the consideration that's coming to the company is likely to cover the liquidation preferences for the investors, but not likely to compensate the executives very heavily. And so they're looking to kind of create a separate plan to compensate those uh, executives to retain them through the exit transaction. Any thoughts on best practices in creating approval process for this at the board level? Yeah. So in that case, you know, you, you what you're talking about is the creation of a, what we often call a management incentive plan. You know, a plan that keeps them in their seats and incentivized to see that deal through, even though 
they otherwise might not get very good economics, if any. And so uh, this is a great example of a, of a program that most certainly you know, in the private company context, a board would like to approve. But the board might not have you know, good data and information at its ready in order to determine what that plan ought to look like and how those incentives should work. And so we would um, often see, and I should also add, typically the CEO, who would be the primary and largest beneficiary of the plan, also often sits on the board. And so you can envision a conflict of interest there. So it's a great example where a comp committee might be uh, available to do that work, to do the homework and the analysis without the necessarily the CEO in a decision-making role or in a role that might unduly influence you know, the, the decision because of the perceived conflict. And so committee could do the work and, and then ultimately make a recommendation to the board. What if you don't have a compensation committee and this issue comes up, Melanie? What would you do then? If I didn't have a compensation committee, and again, most public companies will, but if I didn't have a compensation committee, what I would recommend would that we look at the independent members of the board to the extent there are those and see if we can take some of those to come together to work with a compensation consultant to form a committee, whether it's specifically for that purpose to put together the plan and to negotiate the plan ultimately. And then once once the plan was done and they had taken the information from the consultant or, or their other advisors, would then make a recommendation to the full board who could then approve it. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. And and one of the things that is very important, let's say under Delaware law in particular, is it's not just the fairness of that plan, but also the process with which that plan was approved. And when you're entering into a plan that's meant to compensate management, to see them through the deal, and of course, the context of that plan might be that the investors are receiving the lion's share of the consideration, it's sometimes hard to find somebody independent because the executives who are going to participate in that plan aren't independent, and the investors who sit on the board aren't independent. And so it is a great example of where an independent director or independent directors can play a very valuable role as your company grows and encounters these kind of more complicated corporate governance situations. And having that independent board, special committee of the board of independent members to approve something like this can be very helpful if the shareholders were ever to disagree with the approach that was taken by the company and by the board. So that wraps up our third session on Mintz's podcast series, In the Boardroom, Practical Advice and Guidance for Growth-Oriented Companies. I want to thank Tom Burton and Melanie Levy for joining me today. Thank you, guys. We will see you for our next session.